This time, the children ages three to seven who will be attending children's worship can meet in the back. They'll rejoin us for the Lord's Supper or, or thereabouts. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17. I'll give you just a moment because I don't want to finish reading it before you finish turning there. Our scripture reading this morning is one verse, and it's actually not even the first phrase that's posted on the screen. Matthew 17, verse 20, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. If you were here last week, you're saying, Pastor, we already heard that one last week. Please move along. Uh, but I would like to explain to you why we are spending a little extra time on this verse. And to do that, I need to tell you a little bit about my history. Uh, most of you know me that I am a musician. You've seen me playing guitar or piano. But what you might not know is that my primary instrument is timpani. The kettle drums, the big, giant ones, the four humongous drums that sit in the back of the orchestra and make that thundering, booming sound. I, I love the timpani. That's what I grew up playing in middle school, high school. Uh, I, I got involved in community orchestras and community bands just so I could play more. And it was in one of those community orchestras when I was in high school that we were playing a particular song that had a timpani solo. Do you know how many timpani solos there are in orchestral history? Maybe two. And here I had the chance to play one of them. And so we were building up just the first run through in the practice. We were build, building up to that point and it gets to my solo and I just went nuts. Because the, the solo, the way it was written in this particular piece of music, gave the, the timpani player a certain amount of liberty in how he chose to play it. How he or she chose to express what, uh, you know, the, the music was kind of a suggestion. You could go a little bit nuts. And so after I did, the conductor, Jim Paschal, who was a wonderful conductor, very, very excellent musician, helped me in so many ways. But after that moment, he said, not like that. <laughs> so we went back and did that again. And I, I tried it a little different. Not like that either. So we tried it a third time. No, 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 not like that. And it got really frustrating because for all the ways that he told me, no, not like that, he didn't tell me, here's what it should sound like. Here's what you need to do. And the danger with, with looking at a verse like Matthew 17, 20 that says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will move a mountain. The danger is that as Christians and as, as a teacher of the word, I would come before you and say, it doesn't mean this. And it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this. No, not like that, and not like that either. And never actually say, here is what it means to pray in faith. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a moment to look not only at this verse, but at other parts of Scripture to help us understand what it means to pray in faith. This week we're pausing to see what it means to pray in faith. Because God wants us to pray in faith, and as we see in this verse, God has given us everything we need to pray effectively in faith. One thing that we need to remember if we are to pray in faith is we need to remember the promise of God in prayer. We believe that God is in control of all things. We believe, as Scripture says, that He has determined the end from the beginning. 
that before a thing begins, God has ordained and determined how that thing will end. And if He has determined the end, He has to determine every step in the process, lest it go off course. There is nothing that you or I or anyone can do to thwart God's plans and to undo His purposes. That may at first sound restricting, like we're trapped in God's plan, but it's actually immensely comforting because it means you cannot shake yourself from the grasp of the salvation that holds you tight. You cannot mess up so badly that you ruin God's perfect plans. You cannot, by your disobedience or your inactivity or your failure to obey as you ought, you cannot somehow ruin what God was planning to do all along. And so we rejoice in the sovereignty of God. That's, that word sovereign means that God is in control of all things. And yet, our conviction in the, of the sovereignty of God can become a weakness if we wrongly conclude that because God is sovereign, prayer has no power. After all, how can we expect that prayer would actually change anything? If God, if Scripture says, God has determined the end from the beginning, then what can my prayer do to change what God has already determined? If God rules all things, if God knows all things, if God has lovingly and perfectly planned all things, how can prayer make any difference? And if I, if I really think about it, why would I want my prayer to make a difference? If God has planned it out in His wisdom and His love, why would I want to change that? Well, first of all, we need to remember what God has told us. The one who sovereignly rules the universe also said to his followers in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. As an example of that in Scripture, we see in James chapter 5, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. For reasons beyond our understanding, God has determined that some of the things that He plans to do some of the unchangeable, perfect, mighty plans that He has will come about through prayer. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the uh, constitutional documents of our denomination, expresses it this way in this language, that God makes things happen according to the nature of secondary causes. The nature of second causes. A second cause can be something like the laws of physics, the laws of gravity. Uh, the water cycle. You know, God does not invent and create each and every raindrop, but has instead created a, a beautiful and perfect cycle in nature that causes water to evaporate and, and condensation to occur and ultimately precipitation to fall. It's a second cause, and yet God is sovereignly in charge of it all and can at any point intervene in the process and change and stop and control it. But it falls out through secondary causes. When I... If I were to hold something out, I was about to do this with a water bottle, but I'm sure it would be a disaster. If I were to hold out a water bottle and drop it on the ground, it is not that God is pulling it down, but He has instituted the laws of gravity 
and operates through second causes. But there are other kinds of second causes we see. The free choices that people make are another type of second cause. Following their own desires, their own goals, their own plans. God uses those things to accomplish His purpose. And one of the things that God uses to do His will, one of those second causes, is prayer. Why? Why, in His wisdom, did God choose to do things like this? Well, the simple answer is, for His own reasons. In His perfect wisdom, He decided that this is best. But one of those reasons that He decided, and one of the reasons we can see, is that it blesses us. It blesses us that God uses prayer. God does not need human beings to come together to create life. He can create human life without human participation, and yet He chooses to involve us in the process of creating life. God does not need our voices to preach the gospel, and yet He chooses to use us to proclaim the gospel, which He could have done with angels. He could have done with mysterious messages in the sand. He could have done and has done with a donkey. And yet He uses us. He includes us in the process when He doesn't need to. He doesn't need us to give or to build or to create anything, but He allows us to create and to contribute and to serve. The philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal described it in this way. God gives us the dignity of causality. God gives us dignity. He blesses us in making us to be a cause, making us make things happen. And one of the ways we do that is prayer. He doesn't need our prayers to accomplish His will. God isn't in heaven wringing His hands with something that He hopes is going to happen, but oh by golly, it can't happen until enough people pray for it, and I don't know what I'm going to do if they don't pray. That's nonsense. It's not how prayer works. He allows us to play a part in unleashing his power. It's like if you've, ever seen, if you've ever invited a young child to help you uh, to cook something or to build something, and, and you've helped guide their hands as, as they use the tool or the equipment, and you help them kind of add the ingredients or, or, or cut the wood or whatever you've included that child in, did you need their help? No. But is it not a beautiful thing to see their face light up as they are included in something they could not have done on their own. And God, our Father, lets our faces light up with causality, with being a part of carrying out and exercising His perfect plan. He includes us. Your Heavenly Father invites you to help Him build His kingdom by prayer. Through prayer to be a part of how He changes the world. If that is the case, then the power of prayer is not in our words, neither in the sincerity of our prayers nor the repetition of our prayers. The power of our prayer is the power of God. And that's what we see here in Matthew 17, 20. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. If prayer is, is partnering with God, teaming up with God in His work, then what kind of power can we expect? Is it limited to what we ourselves can accomplish? Is it limited to, to how great or how little faith we have? No, that's what we looked at last week. It doesn't matter 
if, you're, if you have faith by the bucket load or faith by the mustard seed. Because it's not the power of your faith that changes anything. It's the object of your faith. It's the one in whom you have faith. And therefore, it's not the power of your prayer that changes anything at all. It's the power of God that does it. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 17. That even the smallest amount of faith can do the greatest things. Because it's not your faith that's doing it. It's God that does these things. For a while, I used to have this verse posted above the spot where I would pray. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Dot, dot, dot. Just remind myself, that's who I'm praying to. The one who can do more than I can imagine. The one who can do more than I can conceive of. More than I can, in my human limitation, expect. He is capable of more. And so the power that I can expect to be at work when I pray is not the power that I can imagine. It is the power of God. God is not limited by what you think is possible or even what you dare ask for. His power is such that nothing is impossible. Prayer is our partnership in action with the Almighty God. And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you and encourage you to pray in faith Believing that whatever you ask for, you have the promise of God that nothing is impossible. Even more than you ask for is possible. And yet, and yet many mountains remain unmoved, do they not? Many prayers seem to go forever unanswered. Too often our words and our prayers are met only with the silence of God. Because praying in faith requires us to not only keep in mind the promise of God, but also the purpose of God. Some of the scriptures that we look at can give us a a one-sided impression of how we should pray. For example, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The very desires of your heart, everything you've ever wanted, He will give you, is how that seems to speak. Or John 15, 7, Jesus saying, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Those are just a few examples of many that we could choose from Scripture, but the idea seems clear. Ask for whatever you want. Prayer is how you inform God of how you want to be blessed. And if you do it right, and if you have the right faith, you'll get whatever you want. And when God doesn't answer your prayers, when God doesn't give you what you want, well, then you have to step back and say, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe I did something else wrong. Maybe I didn't know what it meant to ask in the right way. We need to back up and let Scripture remind us of the purpose of prayer. Why do we pray? And how does that affect our understanding of these beautiful assurances? I don't want to minimize what Jesus says here. The Lord will give you the desires of His heart. Whatever you ask for. Whatever you ask for. I don't want to minimize that. But we need to understand that in the the bigger picture of how Scripture presents prayer to us. James chapter 4, verse 3 warns us, you ask and do not receive 
because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is a wrong way to ask of God. It has nothing to do with the words that you patch together or the formula you use or how strongly you believe as you ask. The wrong way to ask of God is to ask for the wrong purpose. To ask with the intention of satisfying your passions, your desires. You have turned prayer into a call-in request line. God, here's what I want. Please satisfy me. But prayer has a different purpose, a higher purpose. In prayer, we are to remember God's purpose. And so, as we confessed in our confession of faith this morning, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He began His prayer with with these requests, which is really one and the same request in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done is one and the same thing. God's kingdom comes when His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The priority of God's kingdom should be the main theme of our prayer. We pray for His kingdom to come and for His will to be done. In prayer, we ask for that to be a reality. Now that's not to say that our own desires and needs are not to be the subject of prayer. I'm not critiquing as we pray for uh, those of us that are sick or, or in distress Yes, we pray for those things as well. We are taught to do so. At the very least, the next verse in Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread, praying for what we need. And in James, the same passage we looked at earlier about Elijah, James had set that up by saying that we should be praying for one another when we are sick, praying over those who are ill and, and even calling the elders in to pray for you when you are sick. Yes, we pray for our physical needs and our physical reality, our daily bread, our health. But with that in mind, consider again the promises that He will give us whatever we ask for. How should we understand such staggering promises? The meaning of those verses is not that God would satisfy our whims, but that He answers the prayers of His people when they pray as they have been taught. When they pray in the way that they've been taught to pray, taught by God to pray. Some examples, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable to His disciples with the purpose that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That was the point of the parable. And then He tells a parable of a a widow seeking justice and she's pounding on the door of an unjust judge saying, give me justice, give me justice. And and finally, the unjust judge gets sick of it and He says, just to to shut her up, I'm going to give her what she's asking for. And then Jesus says, now, Will not your God in heaven be more inclined to answer a prayer than an unjust judge? But look what he says in Luke 18, verses 7. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? You see, we, we read Matt, that, that first verse that we should always pray and not give up. And we interpret that as, well, whatever I want, if I just keep at it and never give up and keep praying for it, then surely God will eventually give it to me. That's what it's saying. No, that's not what it's saying. Because in that, own, that very parable, Jesus explained that what God's people cry out for is justice. Your kingdom come. Lord, bring your kingdom. Will God delay in answering that request? Don't give up when you are praying for what God has told you to pray for. 
Yes, we should pray without giving up. Pray earnestly and faithfully. But what is our purpose in prayer? What are we praying for? Here it is for justice, the victory of God's truth, the righting of wrongs. There's another passage we look at in Luke 11:9. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Everyone who asks will receive. But a few verses later, he explains what it is that God gives us when we ask. In verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, very often we are, we are like children who are, who are bugging their parents for a bag full of cotton candy, which will please in the short term and in a limited way. And a parent lovingly says, you don't know what you're asking for. And I will give you what you really want, what you're really craving, which is something to satisfy your desires in a way that cotton candy won't satisfy it. And so the Lord, at times, hears our prayers, praying for the wrong thing, but He gives us what we really want. What we ourselves do not understand, we are actually seeking and hungering for. Even in the verse we looked at earlier, Psalm 37.4, promised that the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, Right? He will give you the desires of your heart. But what did it say before that? What do we first do? Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, does He not change our desires? When we delight in Him, our desires become His desires. So as you delight yourself in the Lord and He transforms what you even desire and seek in life, He then gives you the desires of your heart. This is actually what it means to pray in Jesus' name. How many of us have, have wondered what that means or misunderstood what that means? We pray in Jesus' name. Does that mean at the end of every prayer? And, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm not teasing or picking on anybody here. I do this too out of, out of long ingrained habit. If I am praying at the very end of the prayer, what do I want? In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. I mean, just it. I'm not even thinking about it. It's just how you end a prayer, right? Because that's how you're supposed to pray. But Jesus said that He came in the Father's name. And He was working in the Father's name. And then He explained that what that means is He did what the Father wanted Him to do. He wasn't doing His own will, but the will of the One who sent Him. That's what it means to operate and work in the Father's name. Now, what then does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? means that we pray according to His desire, according to His plan, according to His will. Ask whatever you want in my name. I've heard my kids do this. They don't know I'm listening. I'm not going to share this in the second service when they hear, but we, we have a baby monitor, and I keep it on sometimes so I can hear what's going on in the, in the kids' rooms when I'm across the house. And sometimes I'll hear one kid tell another, Daddy said you have to do this. Daddy didn't say that. And so daddy comes in the room and says, what's going on here? They're trying to speak in my name. Daddy said you have to give me that. In daddy's name, do this. No, you are not speaking, acting, or requesting in my name because you're not acting according to my will. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It says, this is what Jesus wants. I'm asking for what Jesus has said he wants. For us to pray in His name is to pray for that which He wants to build His church, 
that for which Jesus has said we should ask to help his people, that which Jesus has said will honor his name and bring his kingdom. Sisters and brothers, prayer is a great and mighty gift which God in love has given to us, but it is a gift that has a purpose, which makes me think of the old Beach Boys song. Fun, fun, fun. She got her daddy's car. She cruised to the hamburger stand now. Seems she forgot all about the library like she told her old man now. And with the radio blasting, glows cruising just as fast as she can now. And she'll have fun, fun, fun till her daddy takes a T-bird away. I didn't have to look that up. I know that song so well. <laughs> See, what, did she, what was the car given to her for? Why did he let her use the car? To go to the library. And instead, she went to the hamburger stand and cruising and joyriding. The gift was given with a purpose. And she chose to use it not for the purpose for which it was given. And therefore, it was taken from her. God has given us prayer as a tool to accomplish the work of His kingdom. If we take the keys to that car and go on a joyride, will God honor such prayers? No, as James 4.3 already warned us, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you've been following, you might feel the frustration at this point. Or maybe you've always felt the frustration of prayer. We see the call to pray with faith and the assurance that God will answer the great and mighty promise of prayer. But we also see the warning that God does not honor selfish prayer, but instead calls us to pray for His kingdom and and we need to honor His purposes in prayer. And there we get stuck. If I don't know what God wants, how am I supposed to pray? I don't have the wisdom. Sure, I can pray in general, Your will be done, Lord. But it seems that Scripture calls us to pray with more specificity than that, with more detail than that, to boldly pray for specific things. And if I don't know God's wisdom in this situation, how am I to pray? Sometimes what I pray for in my wisdom would have turned out to have been the worst thing. And God, in His perfect love and mercy, says no to those prayers. In other words, Pastor, I don't know how to pray as I ought. You are not alone. God knows your weakness. He knows my weakness. He knows the weakness of all His children in this. And so we need not only the promise of prayer and the purpose of prayer, but we have to remember God's provision in prayer. He provides for us in this way. Romans 8.26 says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that no words, groanings too deep for words, The Spirit of God takes our prayers and transforms them so that we we do not need to fear that we've prayed with the wrong words or for the wrong outcome or whatever. This groaning of the Spirit is because prayer itself is a groan, a longing. Paul, just a few verses earlier, had written in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As children of God, we do not yet experience the fullness of our adoption. I experienced this with with two of my children who, who were adopted. There was a point where we were in country, the documents were finalized, we'd gone before a judge, the court case was done, and and that child was now my daughter. 
They were fully adopted. Nothing could undo that. But then there was a long process, in one case more so than the other, a long process of getting home. In the case of of my oldest, it, it took about a month. A month of struggle, a month of frustration, a month of obstacles and bureaucracy and burdens, a month of separation and desire, and, and for whole weeks at a time, not even being in the same part of a country as one another. Separated until we finally got home and experienced the joy of family. And we who are fully adopted as God's children, we are His children but have not yet been able to experience the full blessings of being His children. We are still living in a broken and cursed world. And so we groan, waiting for our adoption to be complete, waiting for the day that we experience the rest of being at home. But we don't know how to make that happen. All we know is that it hurts and it's hard and we cry out and we say, Lord, how much longer? And the Spirit of God groans with us. He takes our cries and our prayers and our fears and our desires. He expresses them in a way that we could never put into words. The provision of God in prayer is that God prays with you. And you are heard and you are answered. Not on the basis of getting the words right. Not on the basis of having a certain formula. Not on the basis of having mustered up enough faith and enough belief. You are heard because you are a child of God. I want to end with the same thought I closed with last week. This idea that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then nothing will be impossible. It is a beautiful promise, but even more beautiful when we look behind it to understand why. Why is even the smallest amount of faith possible? It's because it's not the faith that does it. It's the object of our faith that is mighty, even when our faith is not. It's not how strongly you believe, but how strong the one you believe in is. It is true of your prayers just as it is true of your salvation. For you are not saved, you cannot be saved by anything you do, anything you give, or even by the power of your faith. Salvation, forgiveness, and answered prayer are only possible as a gift of God. Faith is stepping forward and living your life based on what God has said is true. I said last week, faith doesn't change what's true. Faith changes what you do because of what's true. God says that what is true is that Jesus died in your place. In place of those who were living for themselves. And those rebels are now welcomed home. Welcome homed to the Father's love by the sacrifice of the Son. And so, brothers and sisters, we pray with confidence. Because the Spirit of God helps you pray. As you pray for the coming of His kingdom into a groaning creation. Brothers and sisters, that is how you do it. That is how you pray. You cry out to your Father. You don't worry about getting the words right. You don't worry about knowing what to ask for. You speak as a beloved child in a broken world, longing for things to be restored. As you do so, The power of God works to change things according to His perfect purpose. And that is the provision He has made that He hears and He answers, not because of you, but because of Christ.
Just thank Him for that as we pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as Your children, we would come to You in great faith. Increase our faith. We do not know what to pray for as we are, but we know that we have Your Spirit. As those who have Your Spirit, we can be assured that our prayers are not only heard, but they are indeed answered. And You transform our confused and frustrated requests and desires and longings into prayers and petitions for the coming of Your Kingdom, which You will surely do according to Your timing and Your purpose. And thank You for including us in that and giving us the dignity of laboring with You. We pray this with thankful hearts, according to the will and purposes of Jesus Christ we pray.